density is often touted, including by me, as key to unlocking a more sustainable, livable, cost-efficient future. The idea is an easily measurable one, and it's this, that when we live in higher density communities, that we use less infrastructure. We tend to spread out less, taking up less room, using less resources, and we are more likely to move around our environment using transit. Getting density right is central to creating communities where it is possible to do a variety of everyday activities within walking distance from home, like visiting a health clinic, buying groceries, or getting your hair cut. Walking has implications for our health, our sense of place, our connectedness to our communities, and our need to reduce our environmental footprint. So all density is good, right? Not so fast. Take Toronto, for example. This city boasts the second largest concentration of high-rise buildings in North America, many of which are in our suburbs. Many of these modern concrete residential buildings were built by the private sector during the city's post-war boom. The thinking at the time focused on the separation of uses and the assumption that every occupant would own and drive a car. As a result, these buildings are not embedded within neighborhoods. They lack places to socialize like cafes and community centers, but they also lack shops and places to work or to worship. Today, much of our planning work is aimed at remediating these past planning mistakes using what we call infill, that, that means adding new buildings, as a tool to create walkable places where we have a whole variety of different uses. Despite many years of work, change is slow because, well, changing the fabric of the city is tricky. As we invest significant energy to remediate these mistakes of the past, we must ask, are we also repeating them? Are we still building vertical sprawl? We are continuing to build residential towers across our city on the basis that density is good. But density is only good when we get both the land use planning and the design details right. Buildings must have a direct relationship to the street. They must transition to adjacent uses and they must frame public spaces in such a way as to create vibrant, safe, usable public spaces. There is a city in the world that figured this out much sooner than the rest of us, I must say, and that city is Vancouver. I'm Jennifer Keysmat, and this is Invisible City. This episode will feature a chat with none other than Larry Beasley, former co-director of planning for the city of Vancouver. During Larry's 15 years in this role, he set the direction and oversaw a fundamental transformation in the shape and the form of the city, accommodating significant growth in a relatively small land area that is constrained by mountains, ocean, and fertile farmland. Larry pioneered the idea that high-density planning, when integrated with thoughtful, people-oriented design, could offer a high quality of life, including for families. To get there, he touches on land economics, how projects are financed, and how cities can deliver much-needed community amenities. 
Today, Larry travels the world from Dubai to Dallas and everywhere in between, advising cities on how to get urban planning and density right. I thought given how complex this project of sustainable city building continues to be, it would be interesting to explore this very question with Larry himself. Hi, I'm Larry. Larry, I want to talk a little bit about density. And maybe we should just begin with, like, what is density? How do you explain, you know, what density is? I think people, when they hear that word, they think it means a lot of stuff in one place. What is it from your perspective? You know, it really, for the average person as they experience the city, density means two simple things. It means a lot of people very close together. And it means a massiveness of buildings that takes up the airspace around them. Uh, And people have a very natural sense of the spaciousness or lack of spaciousness around them. And they have a very natural sense of the crowdedness or lack of crowdedness around them. And we live in a culture where we have been aspiring to um, less crowdedness and less mass and less a sense of other things that intrude on your freedom of action, freedom to do what you want, when you want, how you want, with whom you want. And so you get, we've lived at least close to a, a, a century of dis, taking apart our cities, removing the natural density that, that really was typical of cities in the past and has always been typical of cities um, because we could. Partly the automobile allowed us to do that. Partly our wealth allowed us to do that. Um, and, and that we have so many choices now. Well, I'm glad you raised that because density, um, even when I think about when I was a little kid in the 70s, density was like the city noir, right? Like you think of dark, shadowed streets that are kind of dripping with wetness, not livable, nice places. And we're sort of in a moment in history where we're, we're reclaiming density as something that is sort of good. As a matter of fact, even today, I think if you look at the at the um, communication of the city and the popular media, you're going to find a, a bad image. You're going to find it dirty. You're going to find it unsafe. You're going to find it gray. I was talking to some uh, producers who were saying that even when they filmed the city, they gray it, <laughs> you know, they darken it often. And, uh, and, and they tell you a story which is not the story of what you would say is the great way that you would like to live or even experience. And so we set up a dynamic of escape, of wanting to escape. And that has been the great urban story of the 20th century was simply escape. Wow, I think there's an amazing irony that film producers have to make the city look grayer than it really is in order to fit with a concept, a misperception of what the city is. So they're playing into that. And the irony is, if they have to make it grayer in films, that means it really isn't it isn't gray enough for what people are thinking or, you know, there's sort of a powerful idea there. There is, uh, having said that, Mostly in the 20th century, when we built the intense city, it was gray. Mm. It was 
marginally livable. It it was actually presented to the consumer as, you know, the second choice, the the uh, booby prize. Uh, those in our society who were successful got their spaciousness. They got their lack of crowdedness around them. But those who weren't quite so successful, they had to live with all of those things. We didn't deliver density very well. And as a matter of fact, I am totally in sympathy with consumers, people, average people, and the escape that they've been trying to do because we've let them down. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, um, we have this dynamic in uh, Toronto, like exists in many cities where a new building is proposed and residents come out and they stomp their feet and they argue why it's bad. And then there's this kind of counter perspective, which is, um, and, and this, you know, the language of NIMBY gets introduced in the conversation, uh, which is language that I don't typically use because I actually think those are legitimate concerns and voices in light of so much that we see in our city that hasn't been done well. There is so much density that is uh, really compromised and has compromised livability that any reasonable person ought to be wary. You have to be. And uh, in, in Vancouver, we, years ago, we knew that because we have limited land, because we have limited opportunity in building the city, we knew that we had to densify. And then we were faced with this conundrum that which consumers would like it. Yeah, you might argue that someone comes from a distant place and very high densities where they've lived since they were born might buy in, and some did. But what happens to the average Canadian and the choices they're making with their homes and their workplaces? How could we entice them into back to density? How could we convert it from that image that we've been talking about, that, that gray, unsafe, unpalatable um, life experience? You know, people know they only live once and they don't want to live that one experience in a negative way. Mm-hmm. How do we convert them into saying, this is a great place to live. This is, this is what I'd prefer. So what we did is that we started by trying to understand what was the basic needs, not just at a level of fundamental functionality, but at an emotional level, uh, at, a, at a social level, what were the things that people really wanted in the environment which they would choose to live? And then how could, as we intensify the experience for everyone, could we deliver even more? How could we surprise them with experiences they may have not have thought about? Uh, and how could we also c- create, a, in a sense, almost like a, a, a contradiction in their thinking that the thing they started to experience was not what they had taught it would be. It, they, it was not going to be unsafe. It was not going to be dark. It was not going to be devoid of landscape. It was, you know, uh, it was not going to be shoddy. So this is interesting. You talked about um, thinking in terms of enticement, how you can entice people into higher density environments. And obviously, there is an environmental imperative to do so, living in a smaller environmental footprint. Uh, But you also talk about this key question, which is really about quality of life. You only live once. So 
you know, <clears throat> great, I care about the planet, but there's certain things I'm not prepared to compromise. I'm not going to live in a, 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 a dark, um, hostile environment because it might result in a smaller environmental footprint. So the quality of life really is the key driver. And you mentioned enticing people, but surely the first question you had to figure out was really how do you, from a design perspective, deliver on all of those promises? From a design perspective, how do you deliver on offering sunlit, high-density living? Great landscaped parks, areas with schools, how do you deliver on that promise? It's not just about enticement. It's about ensuring that we put, when people show up and when they are surprised, as you say, that you figured it out. How did, how did you do that? What, what were the critical key ingredients to ensure that when people arrived into these high-density communities, that their quality of life was in fact enhanced? Well, you know, there's actually three key moves. The first move was we had to go back at a design level and reinvent the environment. And we look back at, I'll be honest, we look back at precedents from the 19th century, the row houses. We looked at all kinds of examples where there was some movement, design movement forward. And we discovered very simple things. We discovered that you have to animate the, the lowest levels. We discovered you have to give people separation. When, they're, when they go to higher, higher densities, you have to separate so that they feel a spaciousness. You, we, you mean the towers are The separated. towers had to be separated. We discovered that you have to offer uh, views, far views, as well as near views. We discovered you have to use all the space better. So we discovered you can't leave roofs just as blank places. You had to make them livable places. Hundreds and hundreds of detailed design factors, which we brought together from all kinds of clever thinking by our architects and our landscape architects and working with citizens. We did a lot of work. Uh, we did a huge amount of work, for example, with families with children who had refused to live at high density. And we said, why? What, what was missing? What, what could you have had? It, 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 could it have been better? Or was this just a fundamental choice? And often they were talking about design. So the design of the city is critical at high density. It's not as critical as densities go lower. You can have a policy-based city, but once you go to higher densities, you have to design the city and you have to challenge every single designer to think of it from an experiential point of view of the people who are going to live there. So you have to have this um, merging of perspective between the architects and the artistry of architecture and the sociology uh, of, of being in a space and the landscape. You have, to, you have to all come together and you can no longer have any one of those artists just calling the shots according to what their dream might be. It has to come together. So design is the first thing. The second thing is, and, and even more important than the design, is to have a social uh, infrastructure. One of the great uh, negative thing that's happening around the world is, as cities densify is that they're not putting the attention to the social infrastructure that has to go with it. So when you live at higher density, it means you can do less things within your own private space and you need to do more things in public space. So you must have the community facilities. You must have the childcare. You must have all at the libraries, all of the things 
that give a social infrastructure to a city. But you have to go better than people would get in the suburbs. It has to be more convenient. It has to be more diverse and all of that. Uh, And then the third is that you have to find a new way of paying for it. Because there's, we found that there's never enough money in the existing tax base. And the taxes are being paid by people living at lower density who resent it being invested at higher densities. So you have to find an alternative funding sources. And in our case, we found that we could engender wealth through densification if it was managed well. And then we could share that wealth with the developers who are doing density and the public who's going to deliver the social infrastructure. So it's that, it was those three layers together that allowed us to, A, explore alternative ways of living at higher density, B, um, reinforce the physical form of that with good social programming and social opportunity, and three, it's a lot more expensive, so how do you pay for it? And once you get all three of those things together, you begin to have the magic to be able to convert what we all have in our minds, which is the high-density, high-rise social housing of the mid-20th century, which we see as dangerous and unpleasant and noisy and all of those things, to a preferred lifestyle. Because here's the fact you always have to remember, we have to remember as planners, and even developers have to remember this, is that we live in a free society uh, where you have free choice and we live in a wealthy society. So you take that combination for the consumer. It can't just be okay. It can't just be good. It's got to be their best choice. And remembering that their home is probably the biggest investment they will make in their lives. So they're going to take that one investment and are they going to do it by saying, well, I can't really, I can't be, you know, I I don't want these kind of concerns. I don't want these worries. I don't want to worry with my family. So I'm going to go out to the suburbs or do they go, you know, we're going to stay here. And, And often having been young people, they were in the city. We're going to stay here. We're going to raise our kids here. You know, it, you have to take that consumer perspective in a free society and then you have to make the way you deliver it work, not the way that they want to accept it or consume it. Well, there's so much in there. I'd almost like to do a podcast on each one of those three on the design (laughs) because the design is so critical, delivering the community infrastructure. And then how you pay is really tricky. Um, It's very tricky in most cities of the world. You've suggested that, um, if I heard you right, you're suggesting that there's really uplift from the density that you've been able to capture in order to deliver the goods the, the neighborhood amenities. Is that is that essentially the model you're it's, talking about? It's actually a, a, a very simple um, economic formula that unfortunately most people don't understand. And that is whatever the utility of the land is set at, the value of the land is defined by. And so when government sets the utility of land at whatever level, when six or 10 or 15 or 25 members of the city council raise their hand and, and set the utility of that land, instantly, within seconds, its value is clicked in. It's a, it's a natural phenomenon, right? Well, well except, except in an environment where you have speculation, where that can be overturned through a legal process, for example, because no, that kind in, of... even in speculation, 
you go back, people can speculate yes. if they think you're going to change the utility of land because that's what speculation is about. That's what it or, is. Or they think they can motivate the change of the utility of land. Right. Right. Uh, but it always comes back in the final analysis. The free market economy works when supply and demand are in balance. And when supply and demand are in balance, that is set by the utility of how you can use that land. You can take a piece of land and you can use it to put a little house on it, or you can put a 25-story building and 500 houses on it. The, the value of that land is going to change dramatically. So what government doesn't realize often is they do set that value. Right. And then they don't realize that they can set layers of value. And they can put performance measures into that equation as they set the layer. So they can say you can build uh, one-story buildings. Anyone could do that. If you want to build a five-story building, you have to make a contribution to the public, uh, the, mm -hmm. the commonwealth mm -hmm. of your city. If you want to build a 25-story building, you make a bigger contribution. And you can set that up actually within the zoning that you... So the utility of land is therefore set not as one simple definition, but as a layering of definitions that come with performance. But you got to see that what you're basically saying is that in your city, it's a privilege to develop. And if you develop in a way that's consistent with the vision and commonwealth of your city, and you contribute to that commonwealth, you get to do more. So this is important. This is a mechanism for capturing value and putting that value back into the critical infrastructure that's required to make density livable. That's right. Densible, density desirable as well. Because the one thing that we discovered in our, in our experience with densification, and we probably had one of the earliest and most intensive in Canada, was it's much more expensive to deliver the quality of uh, that you need. Even in Toronto, you're struggling with the social infrastructure side. Absolutely. You're struggling with that and you need more um, sources of, of wealth. You know how you said that it's a management of value. In fact, what you do is you create wealth in the way you design your zoning. You take something that was not valuable and you make it valuable. Now, the way you make it valuable can either mean that the market will trade its land and someone else will get that value. I've always said, my, for example, my grandmother was the biggest speculator of all. <laughs> she bought her house at $20,000. It's now, you know, you can do uh, a building there and she wants all the profits. <laughs> She's not accepting $25,000 after 35 years. She wants $2.5 million and she wants it all, right? <laughs> That's great. So, so as she should. Yes, as she should. But, but... Um, so so uh, you create that wealth and if you do it the right way, you can manage whose pocket it goes into. Right. And if you can manage whose pocket it goes into, then those that person is going to be much more likely to want to collaborate with you to take a bit of that wealth and do something that's good uh, and take a bit of that wealth that stays in their profitability. They're perfectly open to that. And... If you invest it back in the public environment, the commonwealth, the public uh, infrastructure of the city, it makes their projects more valuable. So let's just take a bit of a broader view here. Um, that model obviously works very well in Vancouver. Um, it's a model I think will work in Toronto and we're moving towards that with the development permit system, which is about putting those performance measures in place and tying them to as of right, as of right zoning. 
it seems to me it's a model that works when you have a high growth environment uh, where there is a significant amount of value. Does that model work if we think about some of the most rapidly densifying cities in the world? They're in areas of the world where there's a lot of poverty, where there's an enormous amount of social infrastructure that simply doesn't exist. Even basic things we take for granted, like access to regular electricity in some of these mega cities of the world, there's frequent blackouts, daily blackouts even. Access to uh, clean water is a critical issue. Does this model work when you look at some of the the very large cities of the world that simply don't have the kind of economy that we have being such a wealthy nation? The model can work whenever you have in any economic situation more demand than supply. Right. So that there is always a drive to deliver. If there's a drive and and if you're in within a free market economy where there is profitability to be garnered. And thirdly, when you're in an urban system where development is organized. If you're in an urban system where I, I arrive on the land today and I build something spontaneously for myself and you do and we do and, and the barriers, the great barriers of the world, then of course this model doesn't work. But once you structure the development process, then this model can work. If you look at development anywhere in the world, the people who are managing and controlling that development are almost always among the wealthiest people in any society. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because they do a great service to society. They're the only people that actually risk their money and put a spade in the ground and build something. So we shouldn't be against that. By the same token, we should as a society look at those levels of profitability and compare them to other things in society that are also profitable. And when we know that we can all deliver a much more attractive, extraordinary product, thinking of it from a market point of view, by having not only private uh, profits, but also public profits, which is another way of saying public investment in infrastructure, we should be doing it. And what we found in our situation, and I think you'll find in any, if you did the pro forma almost anywhere in the world, and again, a society where there is more demand than supply, is that you will find there is so much wealth in this equation that there's a lot of room for sharing. Hmm. There's a lot of room for sharing. And even with that, the profitability will compare favorably with the other investment opportunities that anyone has. So let's talk a little bit about the role of regulation. Uh, because very clearly, um, particularly your your first and third of the critical success factors, one is really getting the detailed design right. Uh, and the second and the, and the third, which we're talking about right now, which is having mechanisms in place to capture value so that we can push that value back into the second priority, which is the the social infrastructure. all of all of these elements are about ensuring that we create, livable density, really. Um, it strikes me that you're talking about a lot of regulation. Regulation is sounding pretty damn important in the livable, dense city. Can you talk a little bit about the role of regulation and your view around regulation? Because, of course, um, 
there's no better way to silence uh, planners in the planning department than to accuse us of over-regulating and stifling creativity. It happens all the time. But I'm sort of looking around at the great cities of the world, Vancouver included, and thinking in Paris and Amsterdam, and I love Washington, D.C. These are highly regulated cities. As a matter of fact, um, you have to, there's a couple of principles about regulation that, that we have to remember and we have to reinstill in how we regulate. The first is that there is certainly a policing function, a min, what you might call a minimum functionality of regulation. And that's a policing function, is to keep it healthy and safe and deal with all the basics and thank you very much. That's finished. Beyond that, regulation can be, in a sense, a vehicle for collaboration between the public sector and the private sector to deliver something that is better for both. And if you look at regulation that way, what it says to you is that you have to be very articulate on the public sector side of what is the chemistry or the formula for success, right? So you have to regulate. Now, in a regulatory system that is in line with what I'm talking about, you have very few fixed, hard fixed rules and you have a lot of directions. Why? Because creativity is a very diverse activity. You can't, you can't think it all through and, and tie it all down because someone will always confound you with something more creative, right? I learned happens, that. happens all the time. I learned that from Arthur Erickson. You know, I'd sit in a meeting and I'd had it all thought out and he would say, yes, but what if we did this? And I would go, oh boy, I never thought about that. It's even better. I've been going through a lot of that lately in yeah. the city. Ideas coming forward and going, whoa, never thought of that. So regulation has to be more about direct, when you go beyond the basic policing functions, it has to go, uh, it has to be more about setting directions. So so we, we, we tend to t call that um, uh, about performance standards. Which, performance which is, standards, what, what guidelines. Is, what, yeah, what are we trying to get out of this? Exactly. We want sunlight on sidewalks in the winter. Right. The second thing about regulation at the level and nature I'm talking about, which public sector officials often either forget or don't understand, is that you have to build incentive into regulations. You have to build a motivation into the regulation that causes the person being regulated to want to do what you're saying, not have to do what you're saying. That's down at the policing level. And yeah, we have to do that. I can't kill someone when I, you know. But if you want me to fall in love with someone, then you better <laughs> do some things that make, that motivate me. And so to take that analogy and, and put it to the facts of regulation, once you get into a, a, a discretionary re regulation format, you have to build incentives into the equation. So every time... I ask for more in terms of the commonwealth needs. I have to deliver profitability to go with that. I have to deliver enough that it actually motivates the person to want to do it in a free society. And you have to make this not a system where a person is impelled to do it, compelled to do it. You have to make it a system where a person wants to do it. So regulation is about building wealth potential. It's about motivating everyone to want to play in this new collaboration uh, of the, the city of the future. This whole idea of public and private sector being against one another uh, is a very 20th century. It's notion. a dated idea It's for a sure. very dated idea. And then you have to have the mechanism that is true to that. So for example, uh, 
city planners and public officials have to learn about proformas. They have to learn mm-hmm. about the formula mm-hmm. of development. They have to learn when they are actually creating wealth and how much wealth and when they're not. And most public officials can't tell you at all about how much wealth is in an equation. And so they often will push too hard or just as often they won't, Not enough. They won't ask enough. Le- leave it on the table. That's right. So it has to be a, a much more flexible system. It has to be a more directional system. It has to be a system built on motivations. And then from the, let's go back to the citizen though, not the developer. Let's go back to the citizen. It has to be a system that delivers the goods. I'm going to vote for that government who creates that system if at the end of the day, I get all the qualities. I get the good design. I get the landscape. I get the child care. I get the schools. I get the community facilities. So it has to deliver as well. And so it, is, it has to be a, uh, both a very flexible and open regulatory framework, but a well-managed framework that is based on principles that ultimately deliver. Larry, you've reinforced that uh, there are so many pieces to the puzzle. Um, there's complexity. Uh, there's a lot of complexity to delivering great high-density environments. Um, you need regulatory tools. You need to get the funding piece right. You need excellence in design. You need collaboration between between sectors. There's a whole variety of components that need to come together in order to deliver something truly spectacular. One of the things we didn't talk about, um, and for that reason, I'd love to call this conversation number one. Mm -hmm. One of the things we didn't talk about was the role of strategy uh, for a plan or working in a political environment in advancing a plan. Thank you for your comments and contribution today. And I would love to invite you back to have that conversation about strategy in city building. I'll look forward to that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Larry really says it this way. Governments set value through their policies. He reinforces that it's a privilege to develop. And if you develop in a way that is consistent with the vision for your city, there's an opportunity to develop even more. This becomes the mechanism to deliver much needed community amenities that make high density living pleasurable. As we were listening to this interview, my producer, Ryan Freeman, asked, is, is planning really like that? Is, is that how land use planning really works? And my answer was this, well, yes. But you are hearing from Larry what I would position as a very sophisticated take. Larry has had his hands in the dirt for decades and decades and brings to the conversation some pretty deep thinking on this matter. When he speaks, I listen and I learn. So where am I going with this? Well, let me just say that this isn't the last you've heard from Larry and I. I've invited Larry back to the studio, as you heard, so stay posted. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. This episode was written by me, Jennifer Kiesmat, and produced by Ryan Freeman. All of our episodes are on our website, 
invisiblecitypodcast.com. 